Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. Macbeth defines a particular kind of evil, the evil that results from a lust for power. So says critic L.C. Knights, describing the anti-hero and protagonist, meaning central character, of Shakespeare's play Macbeth. Welcome to AudioPie's series on Macbeth for GCSE students. Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most dramatic tragedies. It sets out in awful detail the psychological and physical effects of the lust for power for its own sake. This series will take you through the whole play and analyse the central characters and themes. At the end, we will help you tackle the kind of questions you are likely to have in your exams. In this opening tutorial, we will introduce you to the play and to Macbeth's state of mind. One of the things that makes this play so interesting is that like many of Shakespeare's tragic protagonists, Macbeth is not a straightforward hero, or indeed a straightforward villain. The play opens on a Scottish heath with the description of a battle in which the soldier Macbeth is hailed as a hero. He is described as brave, and it's clear that without him, the Scottish would not have won the day. Returning from the battlefield, Macbeth and his friend Banquo meet three witches, or as the play calls them, weird sisters. They tell Macbeth that he will be named Thane of Glamis, Thane of Cawdor, and soon King of Scotland. This prophecy initiates the chain of events that leads Macbeth to quick ascension to the throne and eventual demise. He murders the king, Duncan, takes his place and then rules Scotland with fear and tyranny until he is defeated by the rightful heir, Malcolm, Duncan's eldest son. This is very different from any of Shakespeare's other tragedies. We never see any other witches and presumably these would have been really scary in Shakespeare's day. So why does he include them? Macbeth was written in the early 1600s, not long into the reign of King James I of England, who was also King James VI of Scotland. We know that King James was interested in, and horrified by, ideas about witchcraft, even writing a book called Demonology in 1597, where he classified evil spirits and witches and endorsed the practice of witch-hunting. Shakespeare would definitely want to impress this new king, who, it's believed, said that he was descended from one Banquo, a character Shakespeare includes. So the play was really quite relevant to issues of its day, and evil and magic 
or at the forefront of the original audience's mind. They are also the issues that create the tension in the play. There's no doubt that the witches are evil, but is Elsie Knight correct when he describes Macbeth as evil? Certainly he lusts after power. That's clear from the way that he responds the very first time that he hears the prophecy of his kingship. Yes, as soon as he is alone, he says in an aside, Why do I yield to that suggestion, whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? This use of the word yield tells us that he is already giving in to his desire for power, especially as then he uses the word murder just three lines later. Hang on, though. Yield might also suggest that it's a reluctant thought. It's as though he is giving in to a suggestion that is not his, but he is powerless to resist it. He even says that it is horrid and against nature. It's as though he is controlled by something outside of himself. OK, I can see that we're not going to agree immediately. So why don't we have a look at some of the evidence from the play? What is Macbeth really like? Is he an easily led victim of circumstance, or is he an ambitious monster? Well, in the first instance, it's worth repeating that Macbeth is introduced to us as brave and noble. He's already Thane of Glams. Thane is a Scottish title that means lord. And he is given Thane of Cawdor because of his great merits, replacing the old Thane of Cawdor who was a traitor. The first time we see Macbeth and Duncan together, King Duncan calls him worthiest cousin, which is a term of affection, and then my worthy Cawdor. That's true, but it's also true that as early as Act 1, Scene 2, his thoughts have turned to murdering his king, which is both immoral and treason. That's actually before Duncan honours him with these titles. Macbeth is already thinking of putting himself in the king's place when King Duncan is rewarding him for loyalty. This is a great example of dramatic irony that's surely designed to make us think that Macbeth is untrustworthy. One of the issues here, then, is whether Macbeth is in control of his thoughts and actions or not, and whether he can be held accountable for them. I've already said that the first Thane of Cawdor was a traitor. Macbeth will be a traitor too. And it's possible to interpret the title itself as cursed. So maybe we can't blame Macbeth for all the things he does later in the play. Some of the key scenes are those which involve the supernatural, like the dagger scene, Act 2, Scene 1, where Macbeth apparently sees a vision of a dagger pointing him to Duncan's chamber before he commits the murder. Or the banquet scene, Act 3, Scene 4, where Macbeth claims to see the ghost of Banquo, whom he has just had killed. Directors and actors have, throughout the years, interpreted Macbeth differently, particularly in these scenes. A good example that suggests Macbeth is controlled by supernatural forces is Anthony Shares' Macbeth in 2001 with the Royal Shakespeare Company. In Shares' dagger scene, 
He is physically agitated, as though his physical being is becoming unstable and fragmented because of the demands of the task ahead of him. Whereas Patrick Stewart's Macbeth in 2010 is controlled and intense in that scene. Although you could argue that he is as mad as Anthony Sher's presentation, he is beyond the point of acceptable fear and comes across as barely human. Again, the evil that results from a lust for power. The driving force behind his act of murder is himself and his own ambition, not witchcraft. Crucially, in both of those versions, the audience can't see the dagger. Roman Polanski's famous Macbeth film from 1971, by contrast, makes the dagger visible and has John Finch as Macbeth following it reluctantly but resignedly. There is a sense of the inevitability of the murder. So it's all about the supernatural then. How far are we meant to believe that the witches are responsible for what happens? In the Polanski version, because we can see the dagger, we are definitely invited to believe that the witches planted it and are leading Macbeth onto his fate. Some directors even place the witches on stage where Shakespeare doesn't direct it, to guide the audience to think that the witches are controlling all of these events. Sometimes they appear under tables at the banquet, in Act 3, Scene 4, or above the stage in the dagger scene, for instance. We can't entirely blame Macbeth, then, for the evil acts he commits. I take your point, but I still don't think we can excuse him for committing regicide, the murder of a king. In plenty of productions, there is no dagger. Banquo's ghost does not appear on stage, and we are led to believe, along with Lady Macbeth, Macbeth's wife, that he is simply going mad. It is just a dagger of the mind. I'm glad you mentioned Lady Macbeth. She is another reason to excuse Macbeth for the crimes he commits. If anyone is lusting after power, it's her. I don't think anyone could argue with that. True, but there are still some interesting debates about how Lady Macbeth might be portrayed. Lots of these are to do with ideas about gender. Should Lady Macbeth be feminine and seductive to manipulate her husband, as in Polanski's version? Or should she be aggressive and masculine? Both portrayals are powerful and plausible, and both show that she has the ability to influence Macbeth. When she is feminine, playing the sexualized wife figure, Macbeth might feel guilty enough to do what she asks. Yes, there's evidence for this when she says, When you durst do it, then you were a man. But when she is masculine and controlling, she's also influential, and perhaps more so than a woman would be expected to be during the Jacobean era. And again, there's evidence for this when she asks spirits to unsex her, in order to give her more typically masculine characteristics. So, we're agreed then. Lady Macbeth has a lot to answer for. Yes, and you could even argue that the murder is her idea in the first place, but we'll come back to Lady Macbeth later on in the series. To conclude then, it is possible to sympathise with Macbeth, even though he commits acts of great evil. He is a good soldier, influenced by supernatural forces, and a manipulative wife, who goes beyond the point of no return, as he says himself in Act 3, Scene 4. 
I am in blood, stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. It's important to remember that any good essay about Macbeth will explore multiple interpretations, and they are all plausible. There's no right answer. And that's why directors and actors continue to explore this brilliant play. We'll return to lots of these issues as the series goes on, of course. In our next episode, we'll look particularly at context, ideas about tragedy, and what's going on in Shakespearean England. For now, though, a good starting point for you to consider after you've read the play is whether you agree with L.C. Knight's that Macbeth defines a particular kind of evil, the evil that results from a lust for power. That's all for this pod. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.